Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. Gazans are refusing Israel's warnings to evacuate south for safety reasons. But now an explosion near Gaza City's main hospital appears to have changed some of their minds. A New York representative saying that Judge Arthur Angoron must leave the financial fraud trial. Why she says he's biased against Trump. The FBI takes the New York mayor's cell phones as part of a probe into his 2021 campaign. What his attorney says. Senate leaders are trying to entice Republicans to vote for Ukraine aid by tying it to border security and immigration reform. What kind of deal is a bipartisan group of senators working on and how will the GOP-led House handle it? And ahead of Veterans Day, the Biden administration is taking multiple steps to improve care for former service members. What changes can we expect? Allegations of misconduct against New York Judge Arthur Ngoron. A congresswoman says the judge is biased against former President Trump in the financial fraud trial. Why she says he's showing clear judicial bias. Here's our legal correspondent Arlene Richards tonight. Tonight, Judge Arthur Ngoron is on notice that his behavior is not acceptable in the financial fraud case that accuses former President Trump and two of his sons of inflating his net worth by as much as $2 billion. Representative Elise Stefanik says in a letter to a Judicial Ethics Commission that the judge has been displaying bizarre behavior and bad judgment. For example, she says when Trump was on the stand, the judge told him, we are not here to listen to what you have to say. And he issued a gag order against Trump that Stefanik believes infringes on his political speech rights. She says it's un-American and that the order restrains Trump's First Amendment rights. The judge ruled that the Trumps were fraudulent before the trial began. Stefanik says he made the decision without witnesses, other evidence, and cross-examination. And that the ruling was ridiculous because he valued Trump's Mar-a-Lago property at $18 million when he had sworn testimony from a real estate agent that it was worth substantially more. Trump's attorneys have accused the judge's law clerk of influencing his decisions, and for that, the judge issued a gag order against them. Stefanik says the judge and his law clerk are donating way too much to Democrats, and that it's against judicial rules. She wants the commission to take corrective action and concludes that Judge Angoran must recuse himself from this case. Arlene Richards, NTD News. In New York, the FBI has seized Mayor Eric Adams' phones. It's part of an investigation into whether his 2021 campaign was involved with the Turkish government. With a court-authorized warrant in hand, agents approached Adams on the street Monday night and confiscated his devices, including two phones and an iPad. The mayor says he has nothing to hide and expects his staff to comply with any type of probe. His campaign attorney says the investigation is about someone else who recently acted inappropriately. He said the mayor has not been accused of any wrongdoing. The move comes more than a week after the FBI searched the Brooklyn home of a campaign consultant for Adams, seizing three iPhones, two laptops, papers and other evidence. The war between Israel and Hamas continues to extend deeper into the heart of Gaza City. An explosion near the main hospital has shaken residents as many more people continue to evacuate south. 
NTD's Jason Perry has the update and a warning this report contains footage that some viewers may find disturbing. Screams could be heard as people who had been sleeping in tents woke up outside of Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza. A man lying in a pool of blood appeared to have lost his leg from an explosion. But who is responsible for the attack? Hamas terrorists have claimed it was an Israeli strike. However, Israel Defense Forces have not yet commented on Friday's strike at Al-Shifa Hospital, but said Israeli forces are in the area. Those terrorists who are staying in the basements underneath Al-Shifa Hospital tonight can hear the thundering sound of tank treads, the bulldozers that pound the earth. They can hear it underground. They hear it and tremble with fear. Prior to the explosion, many Gazans vowed not to leave the hospital as it was reportedly sheltering thousands of people. This was even after Israel's repeated warnings for everyone to leave the area and evacuate south. Now things seem to have changed after this strike as it hit much closer to home. I was in Al-Shifa hospital. Today I could have been martyred and some of my family could have been martyred. The situation has gotten really bad. If the hospital is hit, what safe places are left? Where do I go? My son and husband are still in Al-Shifa hospital. I fled with my grandchildren. God is our savior and the disposer of our affairs. On Friday, Israel Defense Forces spokesperson gave an update on the situation. Already more than 100,000 people have moved south just in the last two days. They moved south and it allows us to battle the terrorists. And he explained that Israel is doing all it can to free the approximately 240 hostages in Hamas captivity. This father here thought his daughter had been killed by Hamas terrorists for weeks now, but later found out she could be alive after seeing her face on a kidnapped poster. Now we hope, now we pray, because we know she's alive, you have to completely switch your head around 180 degrees and think, okay, we're going to get her back. We're going to get her back. We're going to get them all back. Israeli and Palestinian civilians aren't the only ones caught in the crossfire. On Friday, the United Nations, which has been supplying humanitarian aid to the Gazan people, reported that over 100 of its employees have been killed so far in the Gaza Strip. Jason Perry, NTD News. Pro-Palestinian rallies popping up on the streets and on college campuses across the U.S. Who's behind them? NTD's Cindy Drew Kier spoke with an expert on Islamic terrorism, Asra Nomani, to take a deep dive. Investigative journalist and author Asra Nomani tells NTD that behind the pro-Palestinian protests in America is a multi-million dollar orchestrated campaign. Muslim organizations that have now embedded themselves in the West, and they are the ones unleashing these protesters against Israel and Jews onto the streets and into the campuses. What we have is a multi-million dollar orchestrated campaign, and I'm speaking to you from the trenches of that, those efforts in the streets. Nomani shows NTD posters she picked up following a pro-Palestinian rally last Saturday. And you get the sign, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. But what was the chant that they said in Arabic? Palestine al-Arabiya, which means 
Palestine is Arab from the river to the sea. So they have code. And who organized this one? The Islamist groups, U.S. Palestinian Community Network, one of the many Islamist groups that believe in political Islam. And who have they aligned with them? This is what's so critical. You have to see the fine print, as you know, as a journalist. Stand with Palestine and the occupation, right? They use these big words. Who is it that sponsored this? The Party for Socialism and Liberation. Socialism and Liberation. That's the far left. And who are they? Multi-million dollar global networks that are trying to infuse the socialist far left agenda into our nation. They are aligned then. Look at this one. We're gonna break the fourth wall here. Workers World Party, the far left communist organization. Nomani calls the protesters a woke army against America, the West, and Israel, unleashed by a multi-million dollar network of organizations. This ideology that has infused our schools, and what they have done is they are using the talking points of the oppression matrix, the privilege bingo that our poor children have had to experience in our school system, so that now it's an upside down world in which Jews are the occupiers, the colonists, and the aggressors. When there, and there's no mention of them as victims, as happened in the October 7th attack. You can watch the full interview with Nomani on NTD's International Reporters Roundtable, a deep dive into global news with a panel of dedicated journalists and experts from around the world, on Saturday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen outlining U.S. trade ties with China ahead of a meeting between President Biden and Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more from San Francisco. Here in San Francisco, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has been for the past two days holding in-person talks with China's top economic official, China's Vice Premier He Li Fang. Yellen says she emphasized the importance of responsibly managing the U.S.-China economic relation, but adding that the U.S. has no desire to decouple from China economically. However, Yellen also expressed concerns over China's unfair trade practices, including ones that she says would prevent American companies from competing on a level playing field. Here's what Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told us at a press conference here earlier today. Watch. But a healthy economic re requires American workers and firms to be treated fairly. I raised the breadth and depth PRC's non-market policies and practices and their goofers. And Secretary Yellen also stressed to China's vice premier that companies must not provide material support to Russia's war efforts. Yellen says that despite U.S. sanctions already in place, including ones targeting some Chinese companies, equipment is still being delivered to Russia, evading U.S. sanctions. The two also talked about China's economy, which is facing woes, including a real estate property sector crisis, as well as slowing growth overall. And President Biden has repeatedly called out China's economic issues, calling it a ticking time bomb. It remains to be seen how President Biden would address such concerns during the upcoming APEC summit here in San Francisco. Reporting in San Francisco, Iris Howe, NTD News. 
The Department of Homeland Security is stepping up security for the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Trade Summit, or APEC. The city of San Francisco expects to have up to 5,000 police and federal officers present to secure the event and prepare for possible terrorist risks. NTD's Jason Blair has more. APEC 2023 will bring multiple world leaders from the Asia-Pacific region and President Biden together in one city. Because this is a national special security event, the U.S. Secret Service is the lead as far as the security on this event. Around 20,000 attendees are expected, plus another two to 5,000 law enforcement officers. Downtown San Francisco will have a 4 by 4 block high security area. Anyone going into the red zone will be screened and not allowed unless they have a valid reason. Uh, in terms of people who are accessing businesses or hotels, we have a system in place to verify that those people are registered with that hotel. They also expect to see numerous protests throughout the conference. We want to make sure that people uh, are able to exercise their First Amendment right to protest. From environmental to human rights issues, officials say there could be multiple protests happening a day. We try to keep opposing, opposing factions uh, separated and we do a good job at that. And if they're if things start to escalate to uh, violence or, or something that where we have to shut the protest down, we will do that. According to Scott, San Francisco Police Department will have all hands on deck and be working 12 to 14 hour shifts. The event goes from Saturday to Friday, with the busiest days being Wednesday and Thursday. Reporting in San Francisco, Jason Blair, NTD News. Tying Ukraine aid to immigration reform, a bit of political gymnastics going on in the U.S. Senate right now. Senate leaders are hopeful that by linking the two issues, the chamber will get the votes needed to fulfill the $105 billion funding request from the White House. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports from Capitol Hill. A bipartisan effort is underway here in the Senate to reduce the number of illegal immigrant crossings at the border. At the heart of this deal is an effort to make changes to asylum policy, which is something that senators from both sides of the aisle have expressed openness to. But this is not a standalone effort. The goal here is to combine this with funding to Ukraine and Israel after Senate leaders earlier this week expressed the reality that Ukraine aid is dependent upon changes at the border. And I think it will be difficult to get the package across the floor in the Senate without a credible border solution. The good news is there are some Republicans, we believe, who do want to get Ukraine done. In fact, a majority of this body wants to get Ukraine done and who are willing to talk about a true bipartisan uh, deal on border. We're not going to get everything we like. They're not going to get everything they like. Democrat Senators Murphy and Bennett and Republicans Linkford and Tillis and others who are involved in these talks do have a limited window of opportunity to get this done. But there is the reality, the fact that border security and immigration reform are touchy, highly partisan topics here on Capitol Hill. And we see that from the fact that Congress has not been able to pass any immigration reform since 1996. Now, with this new effort of trying to tie it to Ukraine aid, it could go one of two ways. It could provide for more urgency on the issue to get it done quicker, or it could have the opposite effect and actually drag out the time it takes to garner the support needed for Ukraine. And then there's the bigger question of how the Republican-led House under its new leadership would handle such a deal. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. 
Ahead of Veterans Day, the Biden administration today taking multiple steps to improve care for veterans. NTD's Arian Pastar brings us the changes and veterans' growing battle with mental health issues. The Biden administration on Friday announcing three steps to improve the life of America's veterans ahead of Saturday's Veterans Day. First, it's expanding no-cost health care to all living World War II veterans. Eligible vets will be able to claim those benefits starting this month. This includes nursing home care. Some veterans who suffer from Parkinson's disease will also be eligible for free health care. And the third point, the administration is launching the Veteran Scam and Fraud Evision or V-Safe Task Force, saying military personnel and families lost almost half a billion dollars to scams. The government will now educate about fraud, release a fraud prevention toolkit, prevents scam callers from targeting vets and more. The announcement comes as President Biden is set to visit Arlington National Cemetery on Veterans Day. Friday's White House announcement also touched on the pressing issue of suicide among veterans. A national survey found that half of all vets with mental health issues don't reach out to seek help. And clinical psychologist Craig Bryan says that if you want to thank a veteran this year, make sure to check in on him, invite him for a social gathering, or just ask how he's doing. All of these things increase their sense of connection and has also been shown to elevate positive mood and psychological well-being. And when starting a conversation, it's critical to fully engage in it. We often find that veterans will not necessarily say out loud that they're having thoughts about suicide. They may have these other sort of coded statements that would indicate um, that things aren't going really well. He added that veterans and anyone who's struggling can also help themselves by taking small steps such as eating healthy and exercising regularly. Arian Pastar, NTD News. Coming up, a crisis in America's hospitals. According to a new Epic TV documentary, hundreds of hospitals across the nation have closed down over the years. What led to this point and how dire is the situation? It was supposed to be the first ever small modular nuclear reactor, but it's been scrapped before construction even began. We explain why. And a northern California town returns to life. How are people rebuilding five years after a wildfire destroyed most of the area? Find out more when we come back. Welcome back. Amid all of the troubling events in the world and right here at home, here's one you might not have heard of. America's hospital system is in crisis. That's the message of a new movie coming out tonight on Epic TV. Their motto is we care, they don't care. He died in the ambulance. Yes. Almost 200 hospitals in America have closed in just the last few years. You die. That's exactly what happened. 911, what's your emergency? Hospitals have long been a place of confidence and trust. I'll go back just for politics killed the hospital. But what happens when hospitals across America close their doors? All the good providers, the surgeons and so on, left. It's a death in the community. Having two hospitals and uh, all of a sudden having none, very scary. We're at a crisis here, aren't we? Without question, we're at a crisis point. NTD Business's Don Ma spoke with the host of the documentary, Steve Gruber, for more insights. Take a look. 
And with me here is Steve Gruber, director and host of the new documentary on the Epoch Times, Flatline, America's Hospital Crisis. Now, Steve, uh, this is a very fascinating topic. Uh, I think it doesn't get an, enough uh, coverage. Um, let me just ask you, what is this hospital crisis that America is facing? Well, and you're right, it doesn't get enough conversation at all because most people remain, well, fairly unaware that this is happening. But let me give you some some background here. Over the last 15 or 20 years, about 200 hospitals in America have closed their doors permanently, many of those in rural areas, but not all of them. Uh, currently today, according to the National Rural Healthcare Association, more than 600 hospitals in America are in financial trouble. 200 of those are in acute trouble. They could close today. And people don't think about the hospital. They don't, I mean, when do you think about a hospital if you don't work there? You don't until you need it. And these hospitals are going dark for a variety of reasons. Uh, they're going dark in all sorts of places. In the documentary, we traveled to Maslin, Ohio, a city of about 300,000. It actually lost two hospitals in 10 years' time. Now it doesn't have one. We go to Kennett, Missouri. That's a town of about 10 or 11,000 people. Its hospital closed five years ago. And then we go to Ducktown, Tennessee, a town that's as small as it sounds. It served a, an area, a regional hospital it was, serving several counties, uh, a smaller area. But all of these places have lost hospitals, so people lose access to health care. Uh, the jobs disappear along with it, which is devastating to the community as far as its economy goes as well. And these are happening all over the country. Plus, something else we learned along the way, ambulance services also going bankrupt across America. Just last year in the state of New York, a dozen different ambulance services went bankrupt. These are problems that people don't realize are happening to them, to their community, to their country until it hits them right in the face. Now, Steve, uh, personally, I don't use the word crisis lightly. So when you put this word in the, in the title of your documentary, uh, you're not just being sensational, are you? This is really how you would describe the situation. Well, let's take and, and just bring crisis down to a personal crisis. Let's say it's you or somebody you care about. They're having a heart attack. They've been in a car accident. The hospital that's been there your whole life is suddenly closed. So the next emergency room is not just five minutes away. It's 45 minutes away, maybe farther. Is it a crisis now? In fact, during the documentary, we talked to a woman in Kennett, Missouri. Her husband had a heart attack one year before the local hospital closed. He was taken to the local hospital. He served, he spent a couple of days there, he was fine. One year after the hospital closed, he had a similar heart attack. Not necessarily a, a life-threatening heart attack, but a heart condition, obviously. He died in the ambulance because the next hospital down the road was almost an hour away. The other part of this that people don't think about, uh, diagnostics is a big part of what keeps hospitals going, be it mammograms or colonoscopies. These are the lifeblood financially of the hospitals. Well. People will go five minutes to their local hospital and get those tests done, but suddenly the hospital's 45 minutes or an hour away. And they say, you know what? I don't want to take a day off from work. I don't want to take all that time, spend half a day, drive over there, sit in the waiting room. So these diagnostics are not being done. So diabetes, cancer, heart disease, other issues are being missed. What does that have, cause? It causes people to die as well. So whether it's an acute problem like a heart attack or a long-term problem like scanning for cancer or other uh, chronic illnesses, these things are not happening, and it's happening more and more because hospitals across America are closing. I think crisis is exactly the right word. And, and Steve, how do we get here uh, to this point? Well, there's a lot of factors here, to be fair. Um, in the 1980s and 90s, for example, reimbursement, 
CMS is the arm of the government that reimburses hospitals when people go in and they're on Medicare, Medicaid, they're on Social Security, wherever the, the money may be flowing from. Back in the 80s and 90s, the reimbursement rates were quite reasonable. Didn't take a lot of time to get the money back from the government, usually less than 30 days. Now, you go to any hospital of any size in America, they'll have a whole department dedicated just to getting the money back from the government that is owed to them. So that's a problem. And by the way, the reimbursement rates have gotten smaller, 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 smaller. For example, in Ducktown, Tennessee, the mayor there told us that the reimbursement rate to having an indigent person walk through the door of the emergency room was $15, $15. He said he couldn't pay a nurse for 15 minutes for $15. So there's one problem. Secondly, you've got these big corporations, these healthcare corporations that buy groups of hospitals and decide which ones get to stay open and which ones they close. And then, of course, you've got the uh, entanglement of insurance companies and other factors all playing in. There's not one thing to blame here. There are several factors to blame. But in the end, what happens is, is people lose health care. Communities lose health care and jobs and oftentimes their identity because that, that hospital is oftentimes the foundation where babies are born and, and people go when they themselves uh, hurt, they skin their knee, they need stitches, whatever it may be. It's also a place where older people, elderly people go to die with dignity in their community. That identity is ripped away. And Steve, let me ask you a few questions about the film itself as well. So when you were producing this documentary, uh, what did you discover uh, that shocked you the most, would you say? I think one of the most surprising things was the, the uh, vanishing ambulance services. You see, in order to be certified, at least where I live and in most states, I don't know all the rules, but to be certified as an ambulance service, you have to have EMTs on staff 24 hours a day. Well, there's a lack of EMTs available in America. They, there's, a, there's, a, there's a crisis in that regard as well because there's not enough people to get in the ambulance to come help you if you're having a heart attack. So a lot of these ambulance services are shutting down. They're also not getting the reimbursement from the government the same as the hospitals. It's putting them out of business. So, for example, in, in New York, like I said, a dozen ambulance services went out of business last year. Here where I live, just south of where I live, an ambulance service went out of business at the end of last year as well. Now, another company came in and said, we'll cover the territory. But they took away any guidelines or specifics as to what that meant. So here's what it means in practical application. If I'm having a heart attack 20 minutes south of where I'm sitting, half an hour from the hospital, you can call an ambulance if you're having a heart attack. And it will come, but it could be 20 minutes or 30 minutes. Do you have that kind of time when there's a heart attack occurring or there's been a car accident? The answer is no, you don't have that kind of time. They've covered the region technically. But in practical application, it's dangerous because we're being spread thinner and thinner and thinner in the ambulance services, in the hospitals. And I think that's what shocked me the most, how many ambulance services have just vanished because of a lot of that's bad policy from the government. And just one final question for you, Steve. What would you say that after uh, viewers watching this film, what is the biggest thing they will take away from it? Awareness. People need to know this is going on. So the number one thing I want people to get out of this is to find out about the hospitals in their area. Are they in good shape? Can they make it? Will they make it? Will they be here a year from now or 10 years from now? Awareness is key. All right, Steve Gruber, host of Flatline America's Hospital Crisis. Thank you. Thank you. To watch or learn more about Steve's fascinating documentary, visit flatlinefilm.com. This epic original documentary premieres on Epic TV tonight at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. 
One company had the goal of building small nuclear reactors as if by assembly line. But its plans for the first small-scale nuclear plant are now dead before construction even began. NTD's Fake Quarter has more. The first-ever small-scale nuclear power plant has been canceled. New Scale Power LLC was founded in 2007 solely for the purpose of building small modular reactors, or SMRs. The dream was to build small nuclear plants as if on an assembly line. New Scale constantly worked toward that dream. In 2015, it began plans to build its first nuclear plant in Idaho. But those plans are now dead because the company doesn't think it can get enough customers. We're happy for the communities that they've avoided. They've dodged this financial risk. Signing on to this project would have left them exposed to significant cost increases. David Schlissel is a nuclear energy expert who's written multiple reports on New Scale's modular reactors. He says the projected costs have surged by billions of dollars, and potential customers are afraid of how that would impact the cost of electricity. New Scale says that its small modular reactors should be faster and cheaper than traditional nuclear reactors. But Schlissel sees no evidence that that will be the case. Building nuclear power plants is expensive. It's very expensive. The plant that was just canceled is basically a, a reduced in size light water reactor, like the existing uh, light water reactors, except smaller in size. Theoretically, it should have been the easiest one to design and build. So far this century, only two nuclear reactors have been built in the U.S., Nuclear advocates had hoped New Scale's small-scale plant would resurrect the industry, but that goal has now been set back. Faye Quarter, NTD News. A community returning to life five years after the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in California's history. But Town of Paradise is still far from the place it was before the historic blaze. NTD's Eileen Eng has more. The campfire killed 85 residents and leveled about 11,000 homes in the Sierra Nevada foothills town in November 2018. It displaced most of the town's 26,000 residents. Five years later, only about 2,400 homes have been rebuilt since the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in California's history. About 700 are under construction at any one time and just six of the town's 36 mobile home parks that served mostly low-income and older residents have reopened. It's sobering. And there are some people that have a real problem with coming back and having to possibly deal with that again. The town now has more than 9,000 people living there. Many of the new residents are families with young children. The Thompsons decided to just accept the danger and cope with it. They moved to Magalia, just outside of Paradise, in 2021. I think what we really found here is a community that we love. Um, the actual home does have its risks that we're taking on. We are surrounded by trees. Many people have not been able to move back because they could not afford it. Donna Hooten and her husband lived in one of the mobile home parks destroyed by the fire. We couldn't afford to move back up there. It's too expensive. You know, most places. It's going to be only the rich that are going to be able to live up there. Nikki Jones first came to Paradise 25 years ago. She opened two businesses, a candle shop and a women's clothing store. Both burned in the fire along with her home. And then as far as Nick's Deli and Wine Bar, I wanted to have a place where after the fire and the tragedy, people could feel welcome and feel comfortable and feel normal. 
The Camp Fire, the official name of the Paradise Fire, marked a turning point in California's wildfire history. Now, utility companies routinely shut off power for millions of people during windstorms in an effort to prevent fires from starting. Major property insurance companies have raised homeowners' rates to exponential highs or dropped coverage for many in wildfire-prone areas. Other providers have simply stopped writing new policies altogether. PG&E pleaded guilty to 84 counts of manslaughter, filed for bankruptcy, and announced plans to bury 10,000 miles of power lines. The town has installed warning sirens and is working to create more evacuation routes. Coming up, a refugee and veteran tells his story from escaping communism to serving in the U.S. Navy to teaching high school. What he says about a cultural shift in modern society. And the United Nations slams the U.S. for alleged human rights violations like restricting abortions and allowing the death penalty. Does the U.N. want more control? Investigative journalist Alex Newman joins us to discuss the U.N. agenda. Stay tuned for more here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some today's top headlines. More Gaza residents flee south as the conflict moves into the heart of the city. This comes as strikes were reported near Gaza's main hospital overnight. New York City Mayor Eric Adams has his cell phones and iPad seized by the FBI. It's part of an investigation into whether his campaign in 2021 got illegal donations from the government of Turkey. Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik is calling for the removal of the judge presiding over the New York fraud trial of former President Trump. She says the judge is biased and filed an ethics complaint with the state's Supreme Court. The Biden administration announced three steps to improve care and the general well-being of veterans. President Biden is set to visit Arlington National Cemetery on Veterans Day tomorrow. From escaping communism in Vietnam to becoming a U.S. Navy commander and now high school teacher, Wayne Lee grew up in the foster care system and is all about serving others. He shares with NTD's David Lamb his take on society's cultural shift and what Veterans Day means to him. I was a refugee coming to America at the age of 14, and I was able to join the Navy for 30 years, retired three years ago. So I'm very blessed. I'm, I'm very fortunate as a refugee coming to this country. So I know really the, the, the meaning of freedom. Freedom isn't really free. I feel Veterans Day does kind of bring in that sense of spirit in me, uh, brothers in arms, uh, sisters throughout the world, uh, so that they can be uh, helping to, to spread freedom and democracy throughout the world. Wayne, thank you so much for your service. Now, you also teach high school math and engineering. Uh, please tell us why you became a teacher. I had a calling feeling wanting to go to become a teacher because uh, I did some Bible school teaching and I feel very connected to helping kids, uh, the, the next generation. Uh, I feel like they're a little bit lost in their faith. So I, I just uh, feel the calling to do that, to uh, thinking about like bring light to darkness. And uh, coming from a communist country, I know exactly what, what that's like. And our country is kind of drifting uh, a bit 
toward that, you know, communism in terms of the woke culture, the curriculum. And what have you seen in today's culture? So I see, I see a lot of brokenness in families, uh, you know, single mom or dad, uh, not stable families uh, that are happening in this country. Uh, there's a rise in divorce and, and single parents. Uh, and I feel really a stable family. There got to be two people, you know, a mom and a dad uh, to provide that, that really strong foundation. It was hard working because in Vietnam, I was out on the farm, uh, you know, really picking uh, the, the crops and, and things and had to really uh, go into school was a privilege. So it's not like here in America where a lot of kids are taking things for granted. You know, I was, uh, you know, having to bike to school and, and doing a lot of stuff. And really, it was, it was a privilege to go to school. So that's a different mentality. Thank you so much for joining us and happy Veterans Day. A United Nations Committee on Human Rights released a report earlier this month slamming the U.S. for alleged human rights violations. How do the U.S. and the U.N. approaches to human rights differ from each other? Joining us now to dive into the issue is investigative journalist Alex Newman, founder of Liberty Sentinel. Alex Newman, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Alex, you have a piece out titled, UN Report Condemns U.S. Demanding Speech Control, Constitution Change, and More Abortion. What did you find most alarming from this UN report? Well, I think just the general attitude that the United Nations has toward the United States is very troubling. And the attitude that it has toward uh, what we in the United States have always regarded as rights that come from God, rights that come from our Creator. So the UN continually makes references to these international instruments, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, or the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, these types of things. And um, they, they never acknowledge the American system, the American tradition. In our tradition, our Declaration of Independence states it very clearly. It's a self-evident truth that our rights come from our creator and that the government exists to protect those. In the UN vision, very much like the CCP vision, very much like the vision of communist and totalitarian governments around the world, rights are given to you by government. Rights are given to you by constitutions or pieces of paper, and they can be revoked at will by government. And this is the attitude that the UN adopts throughout this document arguing that the U.S. is bad and the U.N.'s vision of rights must be imposed on the American people. Frankly, I, I think most Americans would find that abhorrent. To your point, topics brought up range from guns, free speech, the climate, abortion even. Give us a sense of how this would change our daily life if these are implemented. Well, it goes right to the core issue of what are rights. Right? In the understanding of the framers of this country and the understanding of Western civilization, rights are uh, granted by God and they protect you from government interference. So you have a right to speak freely. You have a right to life, right? These are all things that are inherent in you regardless of whether a government exists or not. In the view of the UN, they say abortion is a right, right? How can you have a right to abort your baby when you also have a right to life? Those two are clearly not compatible with each other. The UN argues that you have a right not to be offended, and so the government then must infringe on your free speech to regulate and control things like what they call hate speech. Of course, hate speech is a Soviet concept. It was the Soviet Union that even introduced the concept of hate speech into the UN lexicon. So clearly, these visions are not compatible. The UN argues that your alleged right to be safe from gun violence means the government must 
restrict your right to keep and bear arms, whereas our Second Amendment makes very clear that the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So on every one of these points, the U.N. is taking the opposite perspective. Now, there are a couple of useful and important observations in this U.N. report about actual rights violations being perpetrated by the U.S. government. But we don't need the U.N. and this collection of dictatorships and kleptocrats to tell us that. We have a constitution. We have a legal process and a judicial system where those things can be handled domestically. What is this ultimately about? Is it power dissolving the American way of life? What is behind this? Well, it is ultimately about dissolving national sovereignty and even the concept of nation states, right? They, they, the people who run the UN, and they become increasingly transparent about this, they truly view themselves as a global government in waiting. Uh, the uh, former Secretary General Ban Ki-moon repeatedly referred to the UN General Assembly as the Parliament of Humanity. Uh, a parliament, of, of course, is a sovereign legislative body. Since when did we grant sovereignty or even legislative abilities to the United Nations General Assembly, where Kim Jong-un, the, the totalitarian guy that runs North Korea, would get the same vote as the U.S. government. Uh, this is frankly a, a ridiculous idea. But if you follow these things to their logical conclusion, the U.N. would become the ultimate decision maker. National governments would become kind of like administrative provinces or units of this unitary state. And even the concept of rights itself would be completely inverted. Rather than something that is inherent in you, something that government must protect, rights become things that the government may or may not allow you to have depending on how they feel. So really we're talking about a, a, an existential threat to our most fundamental liberties, an existential threat to our self-government, our ability to govern ourselves and choose what we want for our country and for our states. And uh, frankly, if you take the UN's understanding of these international instruments, they regard these as superseding our constitution. And this comes through very clear in this document. They're arguing that we must change our constitution by, for example, uh, ratifying the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, Unfortunately for the U.N., in this country we have a process for changing our constitution. It does not involve the U.N. or the opinions of hostile foreign governments. It involves the states in this union, our Congress, and the American people themselves. On that note, what has the response been from the American people given the background of our U.S. Constitution? Well, the public sentiment is very clearly and very rapidly turning against the United Nations. I've been covering this beat for 15 years now, and I've never seen so much hostility toward the U.N. I've never seen so many prominent people in Congress, in the media, uh, openly calling for the U.S. government to withdraw from the U.N., to, to defund the U.N. In fact, several uh, uh, funding bills that have just gone through the House Appropriations Committee have deliberately and strategically defunded key portions of the United Nations, including the World Health Organization. Uh, they also attached a, a rider into one of these funding bills saying that uh, Joe Biden could not spend any money implementing any U.N. agreements, treaties, covenants, or whatever. Uh, unless those are specifically ratified by the Senate as the U.S. Constitution demands. So uh, I, I think public opinion and opinion in Congress is rapidly turning against the U.N. Frankly, I think it's overdue considering the attitude of the U.N. toward our Constitution, toward our rights, toward our self-government. But uh, better late than never, I suppose. Uh, Alex Newman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Coming up in college football, Michigan head coach Jim Harbaugh has reportedly been suspended, but not by the NCAA. In Olympic news, the doping case of Russian figure skater Kamila Valieva was finally heard this week, but what about a verdict? 
And how much are you planning to spend on Thanksgiving dinner? A new forecast says some items are getting cheaper this year, while others are not. Find out more after the break. Welcome back. In college football news, the Big Ten Conference has suspended Michigan head coach Jim Harbaugh for three games, according to an announcement released today. The conference of the team violated the league's sportsmanship policy for, quote, conducting an impermissible in-person scouting operation over multiple years. Harbaugh will miss the team's final three games against Penn State, Maryland and Ohio State, but will be able to conduct practices throughout the week. Michigan is currently 9-0 and and is ranked third nationally. A verdict in the doping case involving Russian Olympic figure skater Kamila Valieva is now expected by the end of January. The new deadline given by the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which heard the case this week, will mark nearly two years since her doping test was the talk of the 2022 Winter Games. That test was revealed after the 15-year-old's performance helped Russia to gold in the team event. Nearly two years later, though, no medals have been awarded, pending the outcome of this case. Should she be disqualified, the Americans would get the gold instead, with Japan getting silver and Canada bronze. Valieva has said the positive test may have been caused by a possible mix-up with her grandfather's medication. The countdown is on for those who celebrate Thanksgiving, and a new forecast is revealing how much your turkey dinner could cost you this year, which items will be more expensive and cheaper. Here's a look at why the star of the holiday meal is seeing a shift in price. This year's Thanksgiving dinner is serving up some dramatic shifts when it comes to cost. Wholesale prices for turkey fell 29% in October compared to a year ago. That's according to Wells Fargo's new Thanksgiving report. The forecast is welcome news for turkey farmers and marks a major shift from last year when a wave of avian flu took out birds, leaving some farms struggling to keep up with demand, which led to higher store prices. This 2023, the Wells Fargo Agri-Food Institute says farms added 2% to 3% additional birds. And that robust supply, plus a drop in the cost of refrigerated trucks to move supply from farm to store, are contributing to the price drop. But get ready for some sticker shock, because the rest of the meal will cost you more. Everything else around it, all those side dishes, choose to spend wisely and shop wisely where you can. According to the Wells Fargo forecast, canned cranberries cost almost 60% more compared to the same time last year. So opt for fresh cranberries instead, which cost about 20% less compared to last year. And right now, production costs for canned pumpkin are 30% higher this year from last year. Russet potato prices are at an all-time high, with prices up 14% from a year ago. So consider going for sweet potatoes instead. Store prices are only up about 4%. To trim costs, experts recommend scaling back. Do you really need all that stuff? Who is actually eating this? Do we have a dish that maybe only gets two or three bites? Scrap it. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at news at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.